I speak to you in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. I distinctly remember once reading a sermon by the well-known and esteemed 17th century bishop by the name of Ancelot, Lancelot Andrews. If you appreciate or grew up with the authorized version of the Bible, also known as the KJV, you will be able to thank him in eternity for overseeing that great work. Andrews in this sermon was going back to day one, if you will, back to the beginning of the story on the day when Adam and Eve broke fellowship with God, broke communion with God. And he painted the picture like this. He postulated that on that day, when Adam and Eve were escorted to the edge of the garden and ushered out, more truly banished from the garden, and as they walked away from the presence of God there in the garden, with their backs turned, they walked away in sorrow, in shame, in guilt, and in fear. And he suggested that on that day, God must have stood there looking on that event and said to himself something along the lines of this, and God can do this, saying to himself, because we believe in a triune God, multiple persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that God turned to himself and said to himself, after them, after them. That is, let us go and seek them out and pursue them for the purposes of redemption, reconciliation, and restoration of relationship that that was the heart of God on that day. And ever since, down through the ages, God has been in hot pursuit of his people for that purpose, to redeem them and to call them back into a redeemed relationship with him. And ultimately, this reality came to fruition, manifested on the cross of the passion of the Christ, in which he took those sins upon himself. You remember, he who knew no sin became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That on the cross, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, made this all possible, the reconciling work of God. After that first transgression in the garden, sin has only increased, you might say exponentially, with the rate of humanity. It has spread like a disease throughout. And God, in his infinite wisdom, knew and has always known very well that this would not only be a problem in the vertical sense between his creatures and him as the creator, but that this infection of sin would spread horizontally, and it would affect us personally on a relational level. 
in homes, in friendships, in relationships of all kinds, that sin would enter into the picture between us and would damage our relationships, would hurt us, would seek to destroy us from each other. God knew that all along, which is why Jesus makes a point to offer some teaching about this very topic in our gospel reading this morning. He begins with these words, If your brother sins against you, which really is not a matter of if but when, seems inevitable, the closer people are together in fellowship, the more likely there is a chance that there's going to be hurt. It's going to happen. Walk into any home this afternoon and just observe. Someone's going to get hurt by something that someone said. May not have been done on purpose, but it happens. When this happens, Jesus offers instruction on what to do. Now, it is worth saying he is directing this teaching to his people, his disciples, the church, to brothers and sisters in Christ. For Christians, this is how we are to respond when we are offended. It's also worth saying we've been on both sides of the equation of this picture. On some days we have been offended, and on other days we are the offender. What do you do when sin has entered in and damaged a relationship? How do you respond? I think the first thing to offer here is this. You respond in the same way that God responded with you. You pursue after that person for the purposes of reconciliation and restoration of fellowship. That's what God did for you and me and all of his people. He's been doing it over the whole history of the world. You pursue them, seeking reconciliation. Now, I understand that is easier said than done. It's not easy. How do you do it? It might be helpful to consider some points how not to do it. And essentially, I would say this. When you've been wronged, when someone has sinned against you, and it's clear, Don't do what comes most easily and naturally to you. What is that? Number one, seek revenge. You notice in our first reading that we are told that that is for God and God alone. God uniquely is able to take vengeance in a way that we aren't and never will be. That's in God's hands. So it's not revenge. It's not to set things equal, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. What else ought you not to do? Turn to gossip. How quickly do people pick up the phone and set a fire by sharing the offense with a whole bunch of people? And the circle grows wider and wider, just like that by the work of the tongue. This just simply devolves into mere gossip. Nowhere in this instruction does Jesus say, go and vent to someone. He doesn't say that. 
On that note, neither are we to make it public, turn it into a publicity stunt. The world is terrible with this. Not a day goes by that you don't pick up the news on whatever platform you have and scroll through and notice some public scandal for the purposes of entertainment. It's not for that person's good. It's just to spread the gossip wider and to tear people down. It's not for purposes of restoration and redemption. We're not told to do that here. And lastly, we certainly are not ever to come to the point of complete hatred of that person, or hatred at all for that matter, to write someone off entirely, a lost cause, hopeless, shunned. Jesus walks us through some steps. He offers the counsel, when you've been sinned against, this is what you do. And it's the hardest thing to do. Go to the person personally and tell them. Maybe you will gain your brother in doing so. It's often one of the last things people are inclined to do, is go and confront. And if that doesn't work, take two or three more with you and confront the person. Be discerning about this. Don't pick two or three people who aren't really concerned about the restoration of relationship. They really just want to hear some gossip. No, two or three people who are going to actively pray with you for reconciliation. And if that doesn't work, take it to the church. Again, remember, this is instruction for the church, the family of faith, the family of God. And if that doesn't work, then he says, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? Still doesn't mean that we are to write that person off. How did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? Go and do likewise. You are to love them back into the kingdom. Love them into the kingdom. The very man who wrote this gospel was himself a tax collector. If Jesus had written him off to the point of complete dismissiveness, he never would have written this gospel. He was loved by our Lord back into the kingdom. Those are some things that we are to do that Jesus lays out clearly for us. Now, when we fail to do this and we choose another path, a failure to pursue reconciliation stems from a failure to understand and see and know the reconciling work that God has done in your life. You ever notice that God never asks you to do anything that he has not first done for you? Be patient and forbear one another. Why? Because God has been patient with you. Love another. Why? Because God first loved you. Be merciful to people. Why? Because God has shown you mercy. Never does God expect or call us to muster up these virtues on our own, just because that's what you're supposed to do. He always gives them to us first, his grace 
And out of that well of grace, are we then to dip a cup and take out a small measure, what we can muster, and share with others? First, you have to receive it in order to give it. You are not the source of it. He is. But again, when we fail to pursue reconciliation and we go another way, our hearts are hardened, our eyes are blind, our ears are deaf to the reconciling work of God himself for us. And the more you see that, the more you will be able and open to pursue reconciliation with your brother and sister in Christ. As a final note here, if you need any more encouragement, know that you are not alone when you are about this work of God, this reconciling work of God. Look at how Jesus ends this teaching. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Those of you who pray the daily office, morning and evening prayer, are familiar with the prayer of St. Chrysostom, at least attributed to him, where we have this line quoted that God is with two or three who are gathered in his name. And oh, how easy it is to sentimentalize that. Oh, isn't that a nice thought? Yeah, God is with us. God is with you. Who talks like this? Let these words of Jesus sink in deep. As an instructor of disciples, Jesus is saying, I am able to be omnipresent. You're going to go out, and I'm going to go with you. I'm going to be with you. Not my spirit is going to be with you, or you're going to draw some inspiration from me from time to time. He says, I will be with you when you are working in the ways that I instruct you. For one, this is a claim to deity. This harkens back to the Old Testament, to Torah, law, when God instructed his people to bring accusations before the judges, and in doing so, it was the very same thing as bringing it to God himself. Jesus is claiming to be that person that those who are steeped in this work are not alone, that he's there, present, with them. Now, he is always with us when two or three are gathered, but he is especially with us when we are seeking reconciliation. The king is with his people for kingdom purposes to build his community. And take that to heart. You are not alone. Jesus Christ, our Lord, is with you in this work. Amen.